sweet scary coming for the scary me boo oh, boo <laughs> <laughs> you, you faked me show. out that's true like it's all a good parody songs it just starts with a rhyme swing low creep show we're done we got a podcast to record Bingo. let's print it <laughs> we're back baby yeah, the dude. kings of the proverbial king yes the kings of king if you yeah. will do my bitting podcast there you're the peasants of king we haven't. Dude, we don't peasant, have an official name the, for the yeah. Fans what's the name peasant. for fans? The peasants. <laughs> the peasant peasants of the king. Um, this is a show where we talk about all things adapted to TV and film by way of the works of Mr. Stephen King, the most prolific and profitable, uh, certainly horror author, potentially book author in the history of mankind. <laughs> mankind. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's Abe Epperson. Yeah, and that's Michael Swain. Hey! Uh, oh. And Creepshow came out in 1982, three whole years before I was born. Uh, but I'll tell you right out the gate, mm -hmm. the first thing I want to say is just that I was obsessed, obsessed with, because if, I don't know, longtime listeners will know, um, sci-fi and horror tinge, definitely dark, but like written short stories, short story compilations were the first and are like my most abiding form of favorite form of art like just period, uh, are like sci-fi short stories, but also I really wanted to be a comic artist as a kid. Uh, so, and very sim for similar reasons, I'm a huge fan of comic anthologies, specifically mm -hmm. short stories. Mm -hmm. And I was obsessed with the Creepshow comic book. Uh, it took me like 20 years to see the movie. And I naturally assumed that the movie was based on the graphic novel and the graphic novel was based on some Stephen King short stories I was unaware of. Mm -hmm. But none of that is true. Uh, it's, it's much more interesting than that, I think. And we'll get into that as we dive in uh, to uh, Creep uh, Show. show! <laughs> yeah. Hell um, yeah. Yeah. We do that through three spectra, right? And the first one's, uh, no, that's, that's Anderson's. Fuck. Fuck me. We, uh, we do it to four spectra, really. Not even spectra, dude. I mean, There's do. segments in this. There's segments, There's segments. in this. Yeah. There's segments. It's fine. And the first one is Under the Dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? This is where we talk about an elevator synopsis of the movie. As we mentioned in Anthology Movie, it's one wraparound story with five vignettes. Five big radishes, yes. And uh, it's the... I wanted to make you mentioned how it was kind of important to you or like where you, you mentioned that it was, you watched it 20 years later. Uh, I watched this. I had it uh, as a VHS on uh, at my house uh, when I was a kid and I watched uh, the shit out of it. Um, and I only later in life learned that it was something that was actually kind of. Uh, a big deal like it's not a cult i mean it's a cult following now just because it's in the past it's 1982 but highly but, successful at but the it was time. very successful yeah. george romero's only film to open at number one at the weekend box office like like we see these little micro trends of course even to this day but it was actually so lucrative that it spawns there you know in my research they're like um it's the one and i never put this together because i wasn't experiencing time in the flow at the time but um of it's the one that spawned all these other movies that i'm aware of that are horror anthology movies and uh it, you know the thing i was reading was like yeah 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 so horror anthology movies 
all failed other than Creepshow and Creepshow came first. And that's why there was this little trend from like 82 to 89 of trying to do these horror anthologies and they never Mm. worked and people gave up. But Creepshow actually was not just successful, but so successful that it had a bunch of imitators. But they're beloved by nerds in the modern age and Mm -hmm. uh, like us, like us. And so let's uh, let's get into it. Um, let's let's just start talking about what it is. It starts with the wraparound story, and by that I mean there's a scene at the beginning and a scene at the end, bookends to the vignettes or the uh, you know, the segments. Uh, it starts with a like a mustacheless Tom Atkins. You know Tom Atkins, right? You're are you a fan yeah. of Tom? At- yeah, Inventor yeah. the Atkins guy. <laughs> yeah, guy. Uh, and he's beating the shit out he's of his beefy. kid, uh, mm-hmm. because he found him with a comic book. Entitled Creep Show, which ably he, uh, played by Joe Hill, who uh, you know is Stephen King's son, but also now has grown up to be legitimately a horror author in his own right. Like I think he wrote The Black Phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's a <laughs> real creepy cool. kid. He's and there real, he is getting like, slapped. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's getting slapped. Uh, obviously Stephen King was worried about that, uh, which is something that I'll just, I just like the idea we'll of get like, yeah, cast my kid, later. cast yeah. my kid and slap him around and slap bit. him around. <laughs> um, I also just want to say to people, this resonates for the framing devices identical to like, if I played these three things from the eighties, early nineties, back to back, I'd be like, which is which it's identical to the premise of the, we're not going to take it twisted sister music video. It's also <laughs> identical to the premise of the Michael Jackson video. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It's just dad doesn't understand, uh-huh. but instead of like a cool record of pop music this time, it's a horror comic. Right. And he's like, what mm-hmm. is this shit? Etc. That's as ex- you'd expect. Yeah, yeah. The kid is, I mean, he's Joe Hill's clearly a demon. Like oh, he's a, ch- a gaslighter, bro. Yeah. He, like, he hits him and he goes, uh, he's yeah. mad. He's clearly mad. And then he goes, I'm throwing I'm it away. And he goes, I'm sorry, daddy. Please forgive me. Please yeah. don't throw it. And you're like, this kid's this actually guy, pretty creepy. Ex- that's a demon. That's uh, <laughs> a demon boy. But it's also, I like, it has this tinge for, like, younger viewers who are just like, because that's what they want to get. They want to get the youngins, as young as they mm-hmm. can get, obviously. Right. And it's like uh, they know that they're influenced by content like this movie. So they're basically like, not your dad's stories. We're going straight to hell. Woo! So they're like trying to get their, they're trying to get their cachet, their cool on, um, which is real. That's right. It, in hindsight, it reads really like, I don't know. Like it's pretty milk toast. <laughs> like it's extreme. Like, well, it's the beginning of the extreme '90s corporations right. trying too hard to be like, "Hey, fellow kids, we ride skateboards, buy our shit." Yeah, yeah we're super and, cool. But a couple things I do want to say about this scene: uh, the dad says, and I totally understand that, like the context of words change. But a movie people know I love is Bad Santa. Where uh, Santa has anal sex with a woman in the women's big and tall changing room as like a key plot point and says this exact phrasing. So it's stuck in my head is that. But the dad says to the kid, next time I find you with a comic like this, you ain't going to sit right for a week, buddy boy. (laughs) I'm like, that dad's going to fuck his kid in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the bad Santa. That's what bad Santa Santa. But I also want to point out that as he throws the comic away, um, lightning crashes and uh, that's there's like that will happen in this movie three times. I think a point will be oh more <laughs> than that, like underscored that's by lightning crash. Which at is least so funny. three. I'm I'm yeah. pretty sure I can remember like five or six or well, ninety. It's immediately interesting about this movie, right? I'll save it for it. Uh, but you know, when you, when yeah, yeah. when it's a bunch of short stories, how much can you vary your bag of tricks? Where do they overlap? Where do they not? But yeah. 
Indeed. Then we see, uh, because we focus on an insert of the comic book, as you mentioned, we get this rad horror comic art, which kind of, um, you know, stitches everything together. It's the tissue between uh, the movie of all the first story. I don't know. You're a big art guy. Do you want it? You want to have any words on that? um, Some of them are reminiscent of the graphic novel. The graphic novel, which I think is a Bernie Wrightson, I believe, or at least he may have done the cover. Uh, Fucking incredible artist, by the way. Bernie Wrightson zombie mm-hmm. art, I think to this day, is like unmatched in my heart. Um, and uh, yeah, so I would say it's like a simplified version of that. The only thing I'll I'll say just to clarify is that, yeah, every, every story is surrounded by the fact that it live action becomes a cartoon. The cartoon pans across the comic or a page blows and turns and we zoom in on a new story and then it becomes live action, right? So you got it. Yeah. Um, and I, the other thing I want to say about that is gone from my mind. <laughs> great. <laughs> great, 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 uh, great. There's something I, about the art. I'll think of it again later. You'll think of it later. We'll talk yeah. about the art a few times. But anyway, yeah. let's move on to the first story, which is entitled Father's Day. And let's set the stage because there's a little bit of... It, t- it took me a little bit to figure it out. Uh, I always know like the status relationships, but I actually wanted to dial down exactly who these people are because it's a group of people. It's an aunt, a niece, and these they're all adult age and older, mm-hmm. a nephew, uh, and the niece's hu- new husband or fiance, who was played by Ed Harris. Uh, right. We're going to drop some names every now and then throughout this podcast because if you haven't seen this movie... Man, it's got a kind of a stat cast for the early 80s before people were really Part big. of what makes the anthology great, right? You yep. get Ted Danson for two days and you got yeah. a segment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's they're talking about this. The first scene is they're talking about their the history of the family, uh, you know, and they're talking specifically about the aunt's sister. So like another aunt, I think. The niece and nephew, it's not like Bedelia, who they're talking to, great aunt Bedelia, uh, is the mother of the niece and the nephew, nor is the aunt, I don't think, that, that is telling the story initially. So it's no. very confusing. There's a third sibling And it barely somewhere. matters, ultimately. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like they're all about to like, die. It's just an unnecessarily rich, confusing setup to me. They're rich uh, socialite pieces of shit, arrested yes, development are. type, right. shallow, fake people. I remember what I was going to say. Yeah, which was just that we got to point out that the dad's point is that the comic book is evil and corrupting and you shouldn't fuck with evil stuff like that, which is presented as like, where does this dad get off? He's fucking square. But the dad's literally right in both in every sense. His child is a corrupted, evil, fucked up kid. And all the magic stuff is true. Like it works. And I don't know if I agree with that because that's the thing. We don't know the specifics. He could, he beats his kid. This is just the way the kid gets back at him. He enjoys a nice cool beer while he sits in an armchair and stares at the wall. That's also what I love. Yeah, he just yeah. sits there and drinks a beer. He's just <laughs> I, I I am terrible parental unit. Babe. Yeah. It's amazing. But back to the first story. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh they tell the story about how their great aunt Bedelia Bedelia. Bedelia. I know because I was raised on the Amelia Bedelia books. But yeah, oh, how, there you go. Bedelia. Her her tragic story, how she snapped and killed the patriarch. Who's yes. a, who was an awful piece of shit with an ashtray, mm-hmm. and he was a real piece of shit, just like Tom Atkins. <laughs> uh, uh, and he is large, and this is largely considered to be a good thing. But ever since, she's been considered insane as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. And she comes back once a year on Father's Day, which was also the day she killed him. Uh, it's very Are You Afraid of the Dark in the telling of it. Um, she comes back every day, on oh, Father, every year on Father's Day a to, to go to his grave and basically cuss him out and be like, you bastard. And her ultimate gripe with him was that she was this reclusive spinster type and the one man she ever dared love. Uh, he had murdered because he was he's rich and he just is a evil man. <laughs> he just didn't like him yeah, or whatever. Didn't yeah. cotton to him. Yeah. And notably, she brings a flower to the grave. She has the complicated, right? It's still her father. And he abused her. So she had Stockholm syndrome to some degree. Right. She, yeah. So it's complex. But I, I do like the added thing of she puts down flower, which is like, you know, kind of media, middle of the road flowers. I don't know the flower names or what brands of flower <laughs> sure. there are. So but she pulls fuck me, I guess. <laughs> so fuck me, I guess. But she, out of the little, you know, vase that they have there, the stone vase for flowers in front of the tombstone, she removes first like mm-hmm. an identical, but also withered, yeah. withered, you know, kind of husk of flowers. And so it implies that not only does she have that Stockholm syndrome thing because she's there to as an antithesis to the very thing of like, you know, but pain you respect, yeah. but she's the only one who does it. And that's right. something else. And uh, as you might expect, almost for no reason. That's what I like about a short story sometimes is. There's no umbrella corporation. There's no fungus that mutated because of climate just change. Happened. The dad's just so evil that he's a zombie. <laughs> like he's alive still because you can't stop how fucked up he is. Or I whatever. like that there's an insert shot of her dropping her like Jim Bean whiskey bottle. Yes. Be- there is a slight argument there. Yeah. I would argue that the dude just wants to get wet, dude. Well, it's a supposedly a reference to uh there is the there is a legend i think irish but it's you know you probably read the same thing i read but i it means water of life in uh gaelic is that it <laughs> whatever gaelic, gaelic, gaelic is scottish gaelic. gaelic is irish thank you gaelic mm-hmm. i don't know which the irish one uh the ancient irish one celtic mm-hmm. <laughs> Fuck well, me. Let's oh, just move dude. on. I we love the idea that there's someone in Ireland listening to this who's just like, that's it for me. I'm just, out, dog. I'm out, dog. <laughs> but, this um, is fucked up. And These I two guys don't know shit about And I wouldn't blame them. But um, the point is, <laughs> there's the there's some legend or folklore that, you know, pouring whiskey on a grave made a dude come back to life. And it could have been a reference to that. Who knows? And we'll discuss that more later because like of the way joke. the film was put together. It feels like an old joke to me. But but yeah. regardless, I would say most people who watch the movie will probably just scan it as, he's such an evil bastard, he's a zombie now. Right, that's the kind of yeah. low-yield thinking they want you to watch this. This is right. supposed to be pulp. This is supposed to be stuff you're just like, ah, fuck it, let's get to the part where it's like fucking fucked up, yeah. Yeah, so he's a zombie, he's got worms and Creepy crawlies all over him. You know, we we relish the effects shots like Abe just sort of alluded to. And uh, he kills Aunt Bedelia. I forget how. Uh, it kind of doesn't. He just cho- he strangles oh, her. Oh, yeah, as he just chokes out. her. So, but all I, I, the big takeaway is that he's yelling for his Father's Day cake, which he was mm. doing when she murdered him. And every year it was one mm. of her hated things, right? As he would yell, Where's my cake, you dirty bitch? Where's oh, my cake? Boy. And, uh, one by one, in a silly fashion, I would argue, yeah. the rich socialites go to look for whoever was last <laughs> went out. Like, um, 
hey, where's Bedelia? And Ed Harris, we get to see him disco dance for a while, Holy which is truly shit, worth dude. watching the whole 1982, movie. 1982, and it's just, it's entirely serious. It's just young like, Ed Harris seriously look at these disco two dancing. Hot bodies do some disco moves. Knowing that his career depends on doing the good disco dance right now in this moment, he's a young man just starting out. Very interesting to see. Um, but like, he's like, I'll check on her. And then he gets killed, and they're like, send the maid out to check on him. And he gets killed. And one by one, they do this until there's uh, we see the zombie uh, snap the, as you said, I barely know who's related to who. But like the main Sylvia, the, uh, the, the, the other middle aunt. generation, yeah, the, the daughter, murderous aunt, yeah, yeah. Um, snaps her neck and we cut away and there's only two people left alive. And uh, I want my cake. And they're like, where? What's that weird sound? It sounds like a zombie. And he walks in. And he's got the person's head, which he ripped off on a silver platter covered in frosting and candles. And they which scream, and that's awesome. the end. Yeah. That's and he awesome. Goes, I, what's he say? It is creepy. Uh, I got my cake. It's <laughs> just something. Oh, yeah. I want my cake. It's like the end of I a Simpsons Halloween cake. special. He goes, mm. happy Father's Day. Yeah. I got <laughs> my cake. Yeah. yeah, it's just unhinged. I love it. That meant that the zombie like did the frosting and shit. It broke off the head. Put garnish, put frosting, put it on a platter. I just love thinking. All oh, right, imagining it doing it. The yeah. zombie doing that, and when it mm-hmm. uh, and when it freeze frames and it turns into uh, right before it freeze frames. There's also something that this movie will do often, which is that it cuts to these kind of disembodied shots of like they clearly just shot it in a studio. It's usually it almost is reminiscent of a comic book frame or an anime frame where the lines are like if someone's like running fast or something like in an anime you get those lines all around them that kind of dictate impressionistic the backgrounds lines. impressionistic backgrounds and they have they they have a color palette that they choose which is like this midnight blue and this crimson um i love that each of the five is punctuated by one moment that is shot that way it's a dutch gobode red blue 3d glasses shot and each of those moments is, you can tell, in Stephen King's mind or George A. Romero's mind, that's the, right, that's the pinnacle of the horror in this sequence. That's we hit the them with moment. that. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of cool to me that they're all shot in the same way and that it's impressionistic. It's like but, yeah. one of the only uh, unifying things. But yeah, it's my it's Father's Day and I got my cake. Happy yeah. Father's Day. So oh then we transition back to the comic, uh, which I also want to point out, there's a character who sort of presents the stories in the comic and in the movie called The Creep, who is the laziest ripoff of the Crypt Keeper ever right. envisioned. And or to the point that I'm it's sure Stephen death. King would defend it by saying, yeah, I know I was referencing the Crypt Keeper and that's right. fine, but uh, whatever. So uh, we pan across the comic and we find a new story ready for our digestion called The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, starring Stephen King himself as Jordy Verrill, probably the most acting in a row that he's, gonna do on screen yeah uh, yeah in his life um maybe. i think this is based off the short story weeds uh and it's just it's basically stephen king plays a yokel that finds a meteorite that is just lying out on his farm and it's full of what i like to call stephen king isms which are just like oh jordy Verrill, you lunkhead and stuff you like done that. slipped in shit and sat on it now and just yeah, shit where you're like no one that's says that. a meteor i'd be <laughs> yeah. dipped in shit if that ain't a meteor uh so it's he's really hamming it up uh it's and- got a looney tunes score 
There's a visible animated comic page turn to transition sequences at one point. It is full on Looney Tunes. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely is. Unlike the others, which actually try to posit some form of drama or like hold hold up as like little mini plays, even though they can get ridiculous. This yeah. one is straight up like it almost feels like it should be animated. And uh, yet I got to say Spine. the animated quote unquote version, the graphic novel. This was the mm -hmm. scariest one to me. The one that haunted my dreams. Right. The art is so much when you're not hearing and seeing no offense, but Stephen King's like over the top corny delivery. Mm -hmm. uh, the concept of how would a lonely guy who lives alone in the woods who's not even very bright um deal with cosmic horror is a, a thrilling concept and what happens to him which is that he accidentally touches the goo inside the meteorite and grass or this weird green fungus starts growing out of everything that's touched including the walls the floor his house and his body um that was like astounding body horror to me. That it was really disturbing, and it's funny to watch the movie and be like, "Man, this is corny as hell." The I, the comic is, uh, it's a good comic. But anyway, in this version, yeah, he accidentally touches his tongue because his finger hurts and blah blah blah. But basically, it's like an alien life form, right? And its function is that it makes you itch so bad, and you want water, and it water will extinguish the itch but of course the water's what it wants so it can grow and grow and grow and we basically just watch him like not do a good lung, job lung death. Yeah. and get covered in grass until he blows his brains out with a shotgun mm -hmm. and the only real writing maneuver is that he goes my luck's finally changed i have good luck and then when the grass covers him he goes oh no i have bad luck and then when he shoots himself in the shotgun he goes i guess i have or good luck or yeah. like please god let my luck hold out this time oh god yeah. meaning just please just let me die which is chilling and that um but not the way he delivers it but mm. in the comic as a concept it's chilling yeah <laughs> Yeah, for Very real. Lovecraft. Uh, there's a few things I want to point out. One is that when he finds some of the moss on his balls, I think that's the implication. Oh, he goes, no, not oh, no, there. Not yeah. there. Yeah. Um, he sees his father as an apparition in the mirror, and his father is like the way in which I think that the uh, his brain is interpreting. His father the, has to tell him, "You're dumb as hell. You're gonna you're fuck dumb this as hell. up." <laughs> yeah, uh, it wants the but the father says in the mirror it wants the water. So Don't it's you clearly know that? the yeah, uh, you, you idiot. The Don't alien substance trying to take over his brain. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's he's a real piece of shit. You're also uh, he also has this whole. We have this. Uh, intercut throughout he goes into his mental space where mm -hmm. he does like all right this is why i'm gonna do what i'm doing and like at initially one of my favorites is that oh it shows you how he views the world which is distorted he wonders how much he could get for the meteor at college uh and then it cuts to a shot of a door that says Department of Meteors. With a guy who looks like Albert Einstein or like Dr. Wiley Like a from wizard, Mega Man. though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he thinks he can get 20, 200 bucks. $200, yeah. And in his mind, he's a very good negotiator. He says, keep accounting. <laughs> like, yeah. that's how he, he gets, that's how he beats the professor. Really reminded me of the Buster Scruggs segment, All Gold Valley, I think it's called, or All Gold River or something. Pure Gold uh, Valley. You know, the, the, Tom the one with one. Tom Waits. Yeah. yeah. Pan for gold. Mr. Pocket uh, or whatever. Great. Yeah. And uh, I do think it's interesting that he never tries to mow or cut or kill the greenery in any way. 
never addresses the problem in even the most basic level. Just as like, what am I going to fucking do about this? I'm I'm going to die. I'm too dumb to figure this I'm out. I'm too dumb to figure this <laughs> out. I love that. I love that. I'm growing. Uh, and I love that there, the other subtle thing that I did enjoy is uh, playing on his TV at one point is a very famous monologue about pioneer spirit and the manifest destiny and the pioneers who took wagon trains west and conquered you know, America, uh-huh. you know, genocide yep. everyone, but manifest, manifest but destiny. Uh-huh. The idea that he's a, and, and it does take place in the past and he's a farmsteader living how hard out on the pioneer and he freezes in the winter and he's burns up in the summer, like the woman in the monologue says. So I do think there's something there about in King's mind about the idea of, um, a pioneer on earth and, and a pioneer, the meteorite life form is also a pioneer, right? And we, mm-hmm. so it's like a pioneer of the earth meeting a pioneer of the stars, of the stars and it's yeah. like a different order of magnitude. You stand no chance, mm-hmm. um, but they're both and, pioneers. And additionally, uh, another thing I want to mention is the, like the, it's surprisingly dense when we, I, I, it's just the way we talked about this particular one. Uh, he sees a reverend on TV at one point. And I think it's important because the the reverend on uh, TV is doing a sermon and it is that God has a plan and it's a good plan and it will be completed. Oh, and it's inevitable. Just give up God's it's plan. He's what this, what God has it's begun a good plan. in you it's will happening. come to fruition. It's gonna be, it's cool. yeah. And I think that that's going to, ha- you know, obviously that has a lot to he's say doomed. about. Right. He's doomed. And what does God have to say about that? And is that a good plan? These right. are things that, you know. I think Stephen King, as he that's what I'm saying, it's a really from the onset. This is early. Like it's a thoughtful, well put together short story, and the graphic Mm -hmm. novel does it justice. And I would say this does not, in fact, do the story justice. It doesn't. In fact, I think there's another version of this that's haunting, kind of like I think uh, color. What is the color out of space? uh, That is a better version of that. Uh, and, and King also, has done similar stories. Or I think he's dabbled yeah. with this in the past. I think yeah. it's a good trope. I think we need to see more of it. It's pretty cool. And we see it's a shot cool. at the end cool. of a road sign. It says Castle Rock, five miles. Oh, and the grass is growing so fast that you're like, well, that's going to take over the earth, right? Classic horror. Ending. Yep. Um, Third yeah, story. It's it's pretty cool with the grass. Third story is called Something to Tide You Over. Maybe the biggest stretch of the title Mm-hmm. Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill is a good horror it's title. Good horror title. Something to tide you over, and it's tide about drowning is <laughs> not particularly <laughs> creepy. Ice to meet you. Yeah. Basically, Ted Danson wakes up just exuding big dick energy, like uh-huh. clearly fucking some guy's wife. You know it before you just it even know comes it. up. But the yeah. inciting incident is Leslie Nielsen shows up at the door threatening. And says, you're fucking my wife. And he goes, all right. It's so good, too, because okay. all I do you is know. keep hearing Frank Drebin. Like, I just, because he has the same, yeah. like, stilted delivery. Leslie Nielsen always- of, right, of Naked yeah. Gun, of course, and yes. Airplane. It's amazing. Um, And I got to say, much like when I saw uh, Steve Carell in The Way Way Back, not mm-hmm. a bad, I'm like, oh, he could have done villains. It just didn't twist that way or whatever. It would be interesting to see him yeah, do Yeah, he's kind of- I'd be interested in seeing him do like Iago on stage and shit. <laughs> he seems like he's a good actor, in fact. That sounds fucking hilarious. Which co- <laughs> which comedic actors usually do end up having chops underneath, Well, I mean, I Nielsen was uh, a little bit rare because he was drama first and then comedy. That's what I'm, yeah, and it comes yeah. through in this. He's really yeah. scary. He's and scary. And he's a tall ass dude. And uh, he also brought a gun, so so he wins. <laughs> and Ted Danson says, um, 
we don't want any of your money. They're obviously both wealthy. And he's uh, like, um, she's going to let you have it all in the divorce. It's nothing like that. It's not cheap. We're really in love. Sorry for that. It's obviously wrong or fucked up or whatever, but like, it's going to happen. Just let her go, man. And you never really loved her. And he goes, you know, I don't know if I ever really loved her, but I do know that I keep what's mine. And that's the point, Harry. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, this isn't going to uh, go well. Keep um, what's mine. That's your life rule. Yeah. So, and he says, funny. there's no exceptions. Uh, and he takes him at gunpoint and says, if you don't come with me, something very nasty is going to happen so, to Rebecca. Uh, just jump in the hole, Danson. <laughs> just jump in the hole. Yeah, t- yeah. Yeah. Takes him to the beach. There's a big hole. Uh, he makes him get in the hole and he buries him up to his head in the sand. And uh, a crab comes by <laughs> as a little nice interlude. Notable crab, I guess. Not yeah. sure what that was about. Just They're like, that's scary, I guess. Just to make you uncomfortable and feel right. like, yeah. You're stewing in it. your crab juice. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Leslie Nielsen comes back with a bunch of cables in like a golf cart and sets up this whole rig so he can both film it's him. amazing. And show him on TV a live feed of Rebecca, who's elsewhere on the beach, buried up to her neck, even closer to the water as the tide comes in. So, uh, Stephen King's not bad at thinking of fucked up. It's pretty fucked up. So, this guy's going to watch in real time as his lover drowns, screaming, begging for her life. And then he's going to drown. That's the plan. <laughs> Especially because Nielsen is morbidly describing drowning to him, saying that's like he's what, taking pleasure in this twisted revenge. It really is he, chilling because he vividly describes, next this is going to happen to you, and then this. And you're like, this is tough to take. And he mentions like how... You have to hold your breath for a long time, uh, which is like, you know, a thing that comes up time and time again. Well, he says it's theoretically possible you could get out because if you hold your breath long enough, the water, the waves coming in and out would degrade the hole to the point that you could pull out of it. But most people can't hold their breath that long. Good luck. And he leaves. Mm -hmm. And he's clearly, it's not stated, but clearly jerking off to these films later or like, we see that he has a closet full of movies and you're like, did he murder a bunch of people? Is this just the latest in a series? Because he has all these secret tapes and he's like, the maid better not have touched my special tapes and shit like that. But Mm -hmm. regardless of all the plot holes that weaves into the backstory, it doesn't matter because it's a short story. Um uh, there's a really cool shot, I thought, of Danson's head in a tank lit by the just a red glowing thing as he holds his breath as long as he can, gives up and dies. And I will note that Danson's, oh, my God, I'm about to die soon and there's nothing I can do acting involves a lot of tongue work. Did you mm-hmm. notice a very active tongue? Yeah, work. the tongue kind of slips Danson out like it, it kind of yeah. it kind of like he kind of hints at the tongue first and then he gives his full tongue. That's right. It's the Ted Danson way. And with his last breath, he screams, we'll get you, Richard. We'll get you for this. So guess what happens next? They <laughs> turn amazing. into zombies. I love the rule that just because he said that, they're zombies now. So oh, like, if I yeah. die, I'm like, I'm going to come back. I have to kill Andy Richter. <laughs> like Then it will happen yeah. just because I wanted it so bad. But you get the sense that they're like sea zombies, right? So, so they like- come in as nautical zombies, seaweed everywhere. They have somehow barnacles on them overnight, <laughs> and like crabs and stuff. Um, I actually did find it really creepy the way they talk because they talk like SpongeBob or like they have bubbles in their throats and they say, uh, we want to see you, Richard. We come to the beach with us, Richard. It we dug a like hole a for you, Richard. Bubbler. It's like a bubbler, like it's oh like God, someone smoking weed yeah. and they do I can't holy. even do it. Yeah, it's yeah. A, that bubbly sound. 
And you know what they do. They do to him what was done to them. And I guess since they're alive now and they have sentience and they're lovers, they probably go back to living in their mansion and fucking as nautical zombies. That's my guess. Yeah. But we they, don't find out because Leslie Nielsen just screams, I can hold my breath a long time, you fuckers, a long time. And, and this is it. another one where I really like now think about like they drove out to the beach because he had to drive out there like in a Jeep. So they drive oh, a Jeep, dig a the hole. Zombies drive or make him drive them there's and they also, sat in the back. <laughs> there's also a camera, there's a shot of a camera at one point, they're recording this and it's got seaweed on it, which is funny, I think. Yeah. And then they uh, leave him to die on the beach. So it's like, there's a whole bunch of things that they had to do right before this. Uh, I That's love true. it. true. It's great. Um, Fourth story. Yeah, I'll save that for it. Okay. Uh, fourth story is called He Stretched to Find His Note the Crate. This is the one with Hal Holbrook, who I'm mainly familiar with because he used to tour all the time pretending to be Mark Twain, and my dad took us to that live show several times. Uh, he does look like Mark Twain, if you think about it for a second, but he's young in this. If you don't know Hal Holbrook, he looks like a young Mark Twain. He's a hand-packed Walter Mitty type. If you don't know who Walter Mitty is, I mean like a... Mousy guy who's henpecked by his wife and is and it's a very male gazy trope that used to though we used to do way more than we do now. But it's like this guy's just like a shrimp and his wife treats him like shit, man. She's just an unstoppable nag uh, and lush or whatever. And that's sort of the trope we're dealing with right. here. Emotionally um, he con- abusive. He constantly fantasizes about murdering her gruesomely. And uh, it's unclear whether we, the audience, are supposed to be like, yeah, that would be nice, or this guy's crazy. But regardless, um, he's friends with another older professor, and that professor gets a call and is called away to the college because this janitor found a crate under some disused stairs all locked away and hidden that says Antarctic Expedition 1834. And he's like... That sounds like they would fetch meteor grade prices among our co- at this me. college. Yeah. Or he's like, Professor, aren't you interested in this? 1834. Geez. And he's like, Yeah, what could be in there? That's very fascinating. Um, they try to they hear some scratching from in the crate. This is amazing to me. The janitor looks in and sees two green eyes in the darkness looking back. And he says, there's emeralds in there. And he reaches his hand in like he has to get them now. He has to have the there's, there's money emeralds. in this crate, baby. Yeah. And uh, a creature bites his arm so hard. It's like a werewolf yeti type thing. Right? Yeah, like a mandrel with a bunch of extra rows of teeth. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Like a Wendigo mm-hmm. uh, rips his arm up. Um, I guess in such a grotesque way that the professor is shocked into not trying to help at all because the professor just kind of looks at him for quite a long time going, I can't believe this is happening. This is nuts. And, and meanwhile, yeah. the janitor, like uh, the janitor character. sleepy. Is just, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm going to take a little sleep now. And then he's like, I'm going to watch you sleep. Like they really pause for it because I think they want you to feel like. There's also a suckling sound that's happening and like, the, it's like very the prominent. Yeah. yeah, it's drinking in blood, but it also feels like it's in like I feel like it's infecting or something. I don't know, but it's that's not. Oh, maybe true. there's poison, but whatever. It it ultimately drags his whole body into the crate and eats it. And I will say to the story's credit, 
This is one of the stories where it points at its own plot holes, as if to say, this is a short story, it's mysterious, that's the point, get over it. Because multiple people ask throughout it, because they're professors, like, how could it eat a bunch of people and still fit in the box? Or like, what do, wait, how is it alive from 1834? Right. Um, and it doesn't matter, right? It's a creature that you can't understand, mm. which I actually think is effective when you draw attention to it and are like, that's the point. Um so it is uh, horribly eating a series of people basically because of misunderstandings. The professor goes out into the hallway and tries to tell a student. Interestingly, later, Hal Holbrook says there's no one and the campus is totally abandoned, which is why the whole scheme works at the end. And yet this one student was wandering the empty halls. <laughs> for this professor to run into at night. But regardless, he runs into the one student who must be there doing something illegal, I guess. Um, and but it's like, you got to help, you got to help, we got to get the authorities. And this kid talks him into not reporting the death, which is just wild, by saying, well, no one will believe us because it sounds so crazy. And like, I guess, yeah, they gotta man. get evidence, so we shouldn't man. even try. And he's like, they'll, th here comes the kingism, they'll think we both went off on one hell of a toot all mm -hmm. right, okay. So uh, he convinces him to let him, the student, go investigate the crate, and he sees all the blood. And he goes. And I like, love immediately as yeah. he sends him, like the guilt racks him, and, he, and immediately the professor is like, "But if I send him in there, I bet he'll be fine. Yes, he'll be fine." And then he's like, "No, he probably won't be. I gotta go in there." And then he yeah. goes, he follows after. Like, so now there's both a whole in there scene again. where he's hysterically like finding logic of should I go or should I not, which I like. Not a lot of horror Just movies. Just so he can witness another second person get yeah, eaten by the box. Yeah, because like in his yeah. mind, he's like, "I'm not going close to it. But if someone's gonna go close to it, they're gonna I die. Watch I better yeah. watch that." Yeah. So uh, he watches this kid investigate and go, this is crazy. This is crazy. Wow, there's the janitor's shoe. I better reach for it and also get eaten. And he goes, all right, this is I'm not handling this well. So I need someone else to handle this for me because I'm not making good decisions. Mm -hmm. So he calls Hal Holbrook, his best friend. And Hal Holbrook says, come over, tell me about it. I'll help you out. They get drunk together. He tells them all about it. Hal Holbrook believes him and he hatches a little scheme. See, so mm -hmm. he gets he says, you look like you're really upset. Why don't you drink and drink and drink and drink until you pass out so I can do, go do my scheme? And he does. And the guy passes out and he leaves a note for his wife, Billy. He and drugs he, his friend. Drugs. Actually. Oh, does he? I didn't see him. put yeah, drugs he, in it. he crushes up some pills and puts it in his. Oh, drink. I missed that. Yeah. Um, and he leaves a note for Billy. Um, tricking her into coming to the school because he says that his friend, the professor, uh, raped a girl and she is so traumatized is, that she's oof. hiding under the stairs. A horrible offer. Good. This is a horrible offer. We'll talk about offer. it more in it. But that she's so traumatized, she won't come out from under the stairs. And he'd like Billy to come since she's a woman to coax her out from under the stairs because he's helping him cover up the rape. And Billy comes, get this. Because she thinks it will be so hilarious and awesome. She's right. so delighted that she'll get to see drama. She's such a drama queen right. that she's like, oh, I got to see this. I got to see <laughs> yeah. this shit. And he knew that that's how she'd react. So that's so he's playing her. Meanwhile, he painstakingly. Also, I don't know where he hid his professor friend. I guess she doesn't see In him. In some bed out. somewhere, yeah. I guess. But uh, he cleans up the murder scene. And Abe, why don't you take this one home? I feel like I'm hogging it. Well, yeah, I mean, he cleans up the murder scene, which is, he does 
a great job, uh, especially considering that he's cleaning all around what's near where the Yeti is. Oh, he and doesn't he seems, even attract. I didn't he think doesn't of even that. Attract, yeah. And like, yeah. So it never like, bugs he, him. Yeah. Yeah. So after the note, we basically we uh, we cut to uh, Barbeau arriving uh, and she's, of course, in uh, she. Of course, she immediately tears into him for bringing her out to the university at night. Like, what a thing to do. And Hallbrook just lays into her and tells her, like, you know, like, I'm going to stand up for myself. And the girl's on the stairs. You go over there. Uh, Barbo goes over there. Uh, it's a little weirder than that. Just got to mention that. Mm-hmm. She's like, you piece of shit, show me this entertaining rape victim you speak yeah. of, you piece of shit. You and he shit. starts laughing. Yeah. And and it's because he knows that he's about to murder her with a crate, right? And he's so hat giddy about it because he's a creep right. too. But it's amazing to me that he still gets her to go check and be after doing that because it's so suspicious. And she, she, of course, she is like, why are you fucking laughing? And he passes it off successfully. By going like, it's just so funny. When you see her, you'll agree. The way this rape victim is curled up under the stairs is very funny. You'll yeah. understand when you see it. And she goes, okay, I'll buy that. And Holbrook <laughs> I'll go and, look under the stairs. And Holbrook at one point shakes her and is basically like, ah, I won, I won. And then we get this moment he where it feels like it's beats her a against the crate. It's uh, like it's a fake out. Like, oh, yeah. you just got told on. Like, this, none of this shit was real. Uh, but then the Eddie jumps out and eats her. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting that he beats her the against the crate wood. after she says, if you do anything, I'll scream. And she, then she just mm. silently lets him beat her against the crate for a long well, time. Well, he says, I'll help you. And he starts screaming. So, yeah. you know, uh, the next morning, Hallbrook tells his friend that, yeah, I secured the Yeti and I dumped it in the, the crate into a nearby lake. It's all wrapped up, baby. Uh, except the last frames or the Yeti is breaking out of its crate, which apparently could have done all this time but uh, the grass that's growing all over the wor- world will kill the yeti so yeah things are fine. they'll fight and the fog will be involved the fog <laughs> yeah. will roll in and just wreck up the place um, yeah yeah so he's like don't don't tell anyone i killed my wife i won't tell i won't tell people that you killed that student because that's what they'll think if i tell them and he's like fine uh good deal and they live together being happy male friends now that those chick, those gross chicks are out of the picture, dude. Now we can just play chess and party. Final bit Woo! is called "They're Creeping Up on You." A man ups and Pratt finds a cockroach in his otherwise pristine, uh, to the point of sterile kind of house. He's an agoraphobe, which is, and he's also very rich. That old trope, uh, and he's also surrounded by tech. How he interacts with like kind of the outside world, and we basically start by seeing him uh, like telling one of his underlings on the phone that he's upset about this cockroach and then we see another and another and another uh and then in while he's finding cockroaches all around his apartment he gets a call uh or no he he keeps talking to george and there's a little reference about his rival has just committed suicide because, because he hostile takeover of his yeah company. pratt has destroyed him in the arena of business uh and while he and then he gets another call after finding more cockroaches in his apartment uh that the his rival's widow lenora calls him claiming he killed her with the rivalry and he's super unsympathetic and uh i love like, what I hope she you says rot in hell for this shit 
shit. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love what she says. She says at one point, "I hope you get cancer in the worst place," <laughs> which is a which is I'm taking dirty Veril's balls. Obviously. Yes, probably, yeah. probably. Oh no, not there. Uh, <laughs> Pratt receives another call from his building superintendent. More cockroaches are arriving. Uh, we're starting to see this perfect storm form because just the superintendent isn't right. there. He's uh, racist he's on to vacation. the guy who could help him. There's like, another, he's just the handyman arrives yeah. and he's like, I'm going to call exterminator and uh, he threatens firing him. Uh, so he's just a, he's like an old Scrooge recluse who basically yeah. is es- uh, essentially all the th- one by one, all of his powers, all of his control, which I'm surprised they didn't do a thing where like literally the phones stop working but i guess they get to that point when the power goes out because yeah but it's citywide i agree with you that that's mm -hmm. not clear it's kind of clumsy because the whole city's power goes out so it doesn't mean as much but whatever yeah um so yeah the when the rolling blackout occurs the cockroaches start pouring into the apartment to the point that pratt calls the police who just ignore him and are like hey we got a lot of shit to deal with Um, he he also tries to call mr white uh, the handyman who he was racist towards, uh, which I love that Mr. White like kind of puts on a like a minstrel voice because he's like fucking with him. He's like, you yeah, got it. Mr. You got a boss, Pratt? you know, yeah. you fucking piece of shit. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, Mr. White can't help because he's stuck in the elevator. And so the cockroaches slowly fill like his sink. They cover the entire walls and desks. Clog up his technology. Pratt basically has to lock himself in a hermetically sealed bedroom and he starts to threaten the bugs. I beat bugs like you my whole life. Uh, And he gets another call somehow, I guess, inside his bedroom. I would say supernaturally. Uh, Supernaturally. That seems to be the widow again who says, like, I hope you die. And so we presume that she's to blame for all the cockroaches. Uh, But then, twist. Uh, when he he turns around and he realizes that the bedding is moving and we reveal more cockroaches and he's locked himself twist. into a nightmare. <laughs> twist and, in the sense that it's the exact thing you'd expect would happen. That like well, just I mean, the straightforward that, like, increase of cockroaches. magically creates cockroaches because- Right, the cockroaches can come from anywhere. The cockroaches are in his brain apparently. Yeah. Or are they? Because the next day we see a pristine apartment. So we think for a second that it was all in his head. But- after a pretty rad prosthetic special effect, once again, Tom Savini uh, reveals like the cockroaches are inside his body. They all cram in his, his body hermetically roaches, sealed chamber. Yeah. So, and then they fill the car, co- and then like the chamber itself is completely full at one point of cockroaches. Um, so it's like we aren't, we are left with an ambiguous kind of like, was, did, were there cockroaches or did he just have a heart oh, attack man. out of fear? I never even considered that they might be in his mind. There were cockroaches, I, I, I think. No, okay. And they filled up his body and they exploded out of him. And then let's he was a fin- bad man. Yeah. Let's finish this with the uh, the final beat or the second beat rather of the wraparound story uh, to end our tale. Some garbage men pick up cans outside Tom Atkins' house and find the creep show comic. Start looking through it and they begin to read it and they notice that uh, they're. Uh, the kid took out a ad for a voodoo doll. We cut He's to like, into oh, the I house. I guess the kid must have the voodoo doll. Indeed he mm-hmm. does. Atkins didn't get any sleep last night. He's like, oh, my neck hurts. And we cut to the kid in his room, stabbing his father's voodoo doll in the neck and torturing him. Credits. That's the end. And saying, yeah. And again, can't stress how creepy young Joe Hill was. Like, mm-hmm. would you like another needle in the throat, daddy? <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, pretty good. Hell yeah. Pretty good. 
Um, which brings us to segment two, Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist! Shut the doors! Shut the door! This is where we just talk about um, loose behind-the-scenes stuff, cast and crew. Um, uh, so yeah, the actors in this, uh, you mentioned, like we mentioned Tom Atkins, uh, who's the father in the wraparound story, Tom Savini, who has been, I mean, he was the, he's called, called like the grandfather of gore or whatever. Legendary like, effects artist. Friday yeah. the 13th, legendary effects artist who also did his share of acting. Uh, but he met up with, uh, Romero and they kind of stuck together for a long time. Ed Harris is in it. Stephen King himself, Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson. Richard Gere shows up at one point, uh, which is hilarious. And Hal Holbrook, obviously, who is deep throat in all the president's men. So and Adrian Barbeau, who is, you know, in the fog and like a lot of uh, a lot of different stuff at this time and also married to Carpenter, I think, during this time. So there's a big. What I kind of think is cool is when you think about like or what interesting about this movie is it really does feel like a bunch of kids meeting up at college and having the same interests. Right. Because Romero in 78 made Dawn of the Dead and that went pretty bonkers like box office wise and he got pretty popular. And it kind of after that he wanted to do one for himself and he made Night Riders and that itself did pretty well in terms of like the also festival circuit. Yeah. And that had Ed Harris. And so. And it had also Stephen King's in it because right, Stephen right. King came over as the man and, with the sandwich. Right, we we met Hoagie Man or something like that. Mm. We mentioned in the frame rate uh, with Soren Bowie on that topic or on that movie, and it's like very clear that it, they were all like doing cocaine and making Night Riders, and they were probably like at one <laughs> Let's point do some kind of creep show. We yeah, should team great. up. Yeah. Yeah. And they did. And Romero would typically like kind of film in Pittsburgh. And this whole movie was made in like this converted, empty, all girls school there. And they basically turned it into a studio slash like living space. And so it became this kind of like way in which you make a, a type of way you, in which you, you make a movie, kind of like a Cassavetes style. Very, uh, you know, like like free, like free love man you know like it's kind of like they're doing drugs and making movies but easy uh, rider purple rain yeah Apocalypse but this is now remember this for stephen king was at the beginning of his kind of career in terms of like breaking into film becoming had, the most famous writer of all time and right shit, yeah. he had had carrie produced by brian de palma in 76 and then shining obviously in 80 and then he was in night riders and that was like his relationship at that point with movies. So Romero was like the first person to kind of get involved in that. And the cool thing about that is Romero himself uh, was, they were also interested in talking with, and Adrian Barbeau is a good example of it. And a lot of the actors who were in the fog, which is also came out in the 80, uh, in 1980, I believe uh, the, there was like a family there that was part of like the carpenter verse. And so there was a bunch of phone calls from like Tom Savini, you know, uh, who, who was talking to uh, Rob Botton, who did the thing, all of the prosthetics for the animatronics uh, in that as well. So they were like talking back and forth. So it really felt, I'm sure, really felt like a kind of, uh, you know, like a, a really kind of cool place to be working at the time, right? Like everyone's young, everyone's pretty like enthusiastic about making like gore and creature features. And this is kind of like, if there's any one aspect of this movie beyond it's like, you know, writing beyond just the movie itself is this really kind of was a summit for 
a lot of people to arrive and kind of work together in a way that they never had before. And then after they all had crazy careers, you know, so it was kind of, that's kind of cool to me is that there's these, just these orbital bodies just running around in the, in the early eighties and they're bumping into each other. Yeah. The only thing I really wanted to add, uh, was about the, uh, order or the provenance, I guess, of the story ideas, as I talked about in the intro segment, which is to say that this technically doesn't belong in this podcast, dun dun dun, because it's not an adaptation of a King work. Um, and that's what I actually think makes it special. It's just a movie written by Stephen King, um, meaning that part of the appeal, and I, I had to put my mind back in, you know, pretend I'm in 1982 and realize that this is not how I view the movie, but the movie you'd be like, if you're a Stephen King fan, these were five new stories from Stephen King, you know, in film form. Uh, and it wasn't based on a graphic novel as I so long thought. And the screenplay was personally written by Stephen King. So I do think it's a very interesting time looking at it from King's perspective because he he's always loved movies. And of course, as Abe said, he's had already, uh, his stories adapted by, you know, and then the big one that put his name on the film maps, you know, so much having Kubrick, like the, uh, one of the top three directors walking the face of the earth at the time adapt one of his biggest books. That was a huge hit. Right. So, and this is just the beginning of what he knows. Okay. I'm going to be a big deal. Um, and I think exploring, am I also going to write movies, uh, is a really interesting thought to sort of mm -hmm. put yourself in that mindset. Oh, um, am I going to be in movies? This yeah, is, yeah. Am I going to be like a writer a crossover, like Donald Glover writer, director like, yeah. from his standpoint, <laughs> he's, he's had three movies made. And it's in interesting to see or, him tackle a screenplay himself. Yeah, right. Or he's had four, he's he's been involved in four movies at this point, and the last two, and including this one, the last two were I was an extra, and now I'm actually a main featured role in mm -hmm. one of the vignettes. Like he, Stephen King had a lot of things probably on his mind in terms of like what's the trajectory of my you know career now. Yeah, and then I also think it's very interesting and notable as people who especially have done sketch, which requires you. Not a lot of endurance, especially compared to a feature shoot. But uh, one thing Sketch does really train you on is range, right? Because you're making a hundred different little things and you want them to not all seem like the exactly the same thing. Uh, and often with parody, it has to seem like a specific thing. So you have to do your work and break down. How does that thing work so we can pretend to be like that? Uh, and I think that's led us to our podcasting careers for sure. Like that's part of the lexicon of why we can digest movies in a way that I think is interesting enough that other people would listen to it and enjoy that. So I do think it's fascinating that uh, compared to Cabinet of Curiosities, right, or Black Mirror or... Um, even like Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or Tales from the Crypt. Every segment, it would be directed by a different director. And that's so you can get that feeling of range. Um, so that each the, every director has a bag of tricks that they tend to rely on. And with rare exceptions, they have a vision that seems to be plastered over their films in such a way that if you want a little anthology that's like a little box of chocolates with different flavors, you usually just have different directors do each segment. Ama this is a compilation completely done by Romero and completely written by King. And it still expresses a fair amount of range, I would say, in the way that Romero, there are tropes that overlap, but Romero had to sit down with himself and go like, what are all the horror tropes at my command? 
and make sure that not every story is homogeneously pulling from all buckets at the same time at the same rate. You know what I mean? Um, so I think looking at it as that kind of directing challenge not only makes you appreciate it more, but makes it that's just interesting versus like I just watched through Cabinet of Curiosities and because it's the, handled the opposite way. It's like a TV show where some episodes ruled the autopsy and some episodes were like, whatever, like the skin cream one didn't do it for me, even though I love Micucci and Dan Stevens. But, you know, um, but even and comparing, I, I never get to talk about graphic novel anthologies, which I also love, but comparing it to something like uh, Flight, which was which like there was a certain year in San Diego Comic Con where all anyone was talking about was Flight, which was this anthology where a bunch of different comic creators who were big at the time did short stories based on just the prompt Flight. And uh, that's a super cool idea. But I also think stuff like Harlan Ellison's Dream Corridor, which was mm -hmm. a which was a bunch of Harlan Ellison short stories that he adapted himself and painstakingly micromanaged to the point that all the artists hated working with him by the end and the series got canceled. That's also cool because it's seeing like the writer take full control because they have the clout and do everything. And, uh, you know, sometimes it makes Jordy Verrill not sing the way it really could have, but it also gives you an insight into King and that's what we're here to do. So I think that's cool. Indeed. And I think that um, I think what was especially important is the fact that it was it, it shows some range and it's all coming from the same place. The director writer to duo, which is also rare for both of them. Uh, mm -hmm. Romero always wrote his own things. This is the only thing that, in fact, he produced that he didn't write. Um, and the same thing kind of said about, oh, I guess. Stephen King, when it comes down to it, is pretty laissez faire about how kind of his interpretations are. You know, he just, I write my books, you know, but like, obviously this is, uh, you know, step one of the DNA of a uh, thing that he's writing and he's pretty mm -hmm. like, obviously open to a collaborator. That's, I think, unique for Stephen King at the time. Were it an interpretation of a work that he had already completed and he like wrote the book and was happy with it. That's different. But I think that especially over time, King has shown uh, a, a kind of wide range of being able to. Um, you know, let go of stuff. You know, he kind of writes it and says that's done and he moves on. Um, and I think that you can kind of see that um, with how they kind of approach and what the themes are in this movie that kind of, you know, resonate. You can see all the Kingisms. But for that, we need to step into our next segment, which is something we like to call it. Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. This is where we talk about the scene work, the themes, and kind of like any symbolism that we pulled out of this movie, which is unique for uh, this movie as opposed to a different one where there's like one overarching story that you can kind of look at all the different streams that are happening and like say, okay, this is what they're saying holistically, like about all this complexity that's going on in the drama. This is not true. And it's like Grindhouse. You're very intentionally, we're not, I don't think we should sit here and be like, no. What is the monster inside all of us that's in a crate and the crate's the human heart? No, 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 it no. It doesn't ask Because that. that's not the intention, right? They're not trying to meet you at that level. It's a fun ride. So it's a fun ride. We've got to tackle it with that in mind. Right. It's a fun ride for sure. But I do want to point out just the things that are clearly Stephen King. We have mentioned several times before, like we really consider him kind of like a modern Americana horror author because uh, he tr he tries to pick apart the things that we isolate when we as a American self kind of 
uh, identify as different archetypes of America from the Midwest to the coastal cities, to the rich, to the poor, you know, like he's trying to find these archetypes of characters that almost are in a way, uh, so basic that they feel like that they're always there, you know, like, um, almost all of his characters and all of his stories kind of follow these trends. And, uh, this one also has that kind of vibe where he, uh, in these short stories, since you're kind of like picking a very, uh, like you need it to be quick and you need it to connect to the uh, audience with like a single, like, yeah, he's rich and he's reclusive. Now you know everything you need to know about him. Well, there's the third, he's a mean piece of shit. And you define that out right away because they're like, this guy killed himself. And he says, oh, good. That will make the deal cheaper or whatever. Right. You're like, and I okay, think that those, those are the two things. I think all yeah. main characters uh, in this movie are isolated somehow by their own making or due to just how they are. So you got an abused daughter in one, a lonely farmer in two, a self-imposed reclusive millionaire in three, an abused husband in four, and a man who suffers from like germophobia in five. And an abused kid in the wraparound. And the abused kid in the wraparound. Yeah. yeah. So the, like isolation, which as we've uh, you know kind of talked about a lot, like the concept of the outsider uh, is very near and dear to uh, Stephen King's heart to the point that I'd say that it's like. Hard to find a story that he doesn't do that in. It's scary to be in the dark alone. Alone right. is a specific, is a key word yes, to being that alone. equation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then the other thing that comes down the pipeline is that revenge and murder and the concept of justice in Stephen King's work. And if you hate strongly enough, you will supernaturally just get your yes. revenge. Yes. It's and come up in city, baby. He has this thing <laughs> where he's like justice for the dead. Like there's yeah. some kind of karmic... You uh, fucked them over too hard. Now back. you get fucked over. Except yeah. when it's a Yeti, then you can get away with murdering your wife scot free. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, I don't know what that is, but well, yeah. if okay, I mean that leads into something I definitely wanted to say briefly, which is, yeah. I do think, even though you can't dig into the artist's intentions, or I think it would be disingenuous to be like, "What was Stephen King's intention? Is he speaking to politics or philosophy?" No, 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 no. It's just it's a horror story. But by virtue of that, right, it's a cultural artifact from 1982. And I think we're always speaking of our intentions and philosophies, even when we don't mean to. And it's interesting to analyze through the modern lens, just because you get stuff like, I did notice the male gaze stuff is very pronounced in interesting ways. Like, uh, I thought it was very interesting that in the story, something to tide you over, not only is Rebecca not an established character with character traits that we get to know and care about, like obviously mm -hmm. the story is centered around the drama between Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen, the two men, but he, uh, Ted Danson gets a monitor of her drowning and Leslie Nielsen even says, um, I didn't bother hooking up a, she's not watching you cause I couldn't hook up like two TVs. Right. I have to point out that there's no, that's arbitrary decision-making on King's part. Right. Cause he could just say he did set up two TVs. In fact, that would be more chilling that they're watching each other drown. Um, but it's so it's actually, it's going as hard as it can to decenter the female experience. Like we don't yeah. give a shit about Rebecca. Don't even think about it from her point of view. And it's pedestal making. You yeah. Know, it's that kind and of I, stuff. And I'm not even saying King is like a piece of shit. It's um, for plot convenience, right? He can't have every character be well-rounded and get through in time. But notable that the default is let's view it through the male's point of view. And then that feels like a setup and payoff for the crate. 
where I actually like the deconstruction that I think he is doing about the male gaze, because I think there is, especially in the 50s and 60s, the the naggy wife with the curlers in her hair with the rolling pin mm-hmm. chasing you, which is not a trope I think Zoomers are even like familiar with. But this trope of um, the henpecked guy who's a beta male. I guess it is, but it's morphed into alpha male, beta male bullshit. But the idea of like a beta male cuck whose wife wears the pants in the family and treats him like shit and is a nag and fucks around on other guys and emasculates him, right? Right. And that she needs her comeuppance. And I feel like at the beginning of the crate, I was questioning like, is this a dated 1982 thing where the audience was happy that he shot her in the head and happy that he strangled her with the tie? Mm. But then by the end, when he's laughing about the rape victim, um, there's this moment that we reference where he beats her against the crate and then there's just silence. And this was also arbitrary, meaning the monster could have come out and eaten her immediately. In fact, that makes more intuitive sense. But King chose to have the moment deflate. Like for him to sit there and nothing happens and her to go, and I'm sorry, what the fuck was that? You are pathetic. You're going to physically abuse me now, you piece of shit. And I think that that, there is some conscious undermining of the male gaze there where you realize that the horror of the situation is how Holbrook's also a creep. Like get a divorce, dude. Do something sane. Don't fantasize about shooting her in the head, you piece of shit. Yeah, everyone's a creep. It's 1982, so it's obviously not enough. But at the time, you can see how it was like the the pushback has already begun. It what a lot of people might watch this and go, it is only like the step one, like fundamental like woman hating. That's what this is. And it's like, well, yeah, it kind of is that, but it's also like they're they're trying to, as you said, kind of like deconstruct it in a way. Yeah. I think that that there that's kind of interesting, but it is uh, something that like King did show. It's that kind of middle of the road thing that a lot of popular authors and you know writers right. get involved in, which is the four quadrantness of it all. Conservative progressivism, Conservative where you go like traditional values. Yeah, yeah. I'm an open hearted individual, but not like extreme. I still right. want to be four quadrant. I still shit. want yeah. all that. I still want all the things you want to. You want Disney, right. you know. Uh, so it's just like it's just. Different different iterations on a theme, different flavors. Yes. Of- also in that same one, I, I love that I didn't notice till this watch through. Is this a John Carpenter score? Cause it's a very sprungy. 80s I think once again, score. it's not, I don't, I don't know. Think. Okay. But it's, uh, or I mean, he's uncredited if, it, uh, if yeah. it is, but, but I forget who they do credit. But yeah, I think once again, it's me. I, w- I was pointing out earlier how it's like people quoting themselves. Like, I think it's the groups themselves like are like I like you, man. I like yeah. what you're dropping. Uh, so I'm gonna quote you on this level, you know. But it's whatever like- genius uh, pumped out the synth score on the something to tide you over is cueing off the fact that there's a there's a moment where Leslie Nielsen, to show how crazy he is, while he's like setting up his murder, whistles Camptown races. <laughs> so because of that, I guess. During when the zombies are coming in, we get a creepy synth score with like sprawling, sprawling noises in it. Yeah. That is a dark <laughs> version of Camp Town Races, doo-dah, doo-dah, like Camp Town, doo-dah, like with dread vibrations and shit. Very funny to me. Another thing I wanted to mention or like kind of last thing I need to mention is the I like that. Movies don't really do this as much anymore, but I mean, it is an aspect of the uh, anthology, you know, filmmaking that's happening here. Um, 
I like that, uh, as we mentioned, uh, there's like a a moment in each of the vignettes that is like, this is the most horrifying moment. The terror really sinks into your main character and they get their own little specific shot uh, with behind, like, with a wall behind them that is colored crimson and midnight blue, basically. And they have an expression or they're saying or screaming or laughing or, you know, the horrors really kicked in. And I really do think that this sets like the colorful comic book tone that allows the crossover for like, you can see what they were thinking about. And we were like, how do we get from live action to comic book? Um, and I really do think Romero did a great job about like how action is usually covered in this movie, especially in the first one where it's like kind of like, all right, like let's get another person to kill. Let's have a lot of traveling, you know, Ed Harris, like walking amongst the great gravestones. Um, it's kind of framed exactly how comic books cover movement, which is different from how movies cover movement. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into it right now, but think of things like you foreground with perfectly placed tombstones that themselves are like horrifying or like big, larger than life, you know, like kind of dramatic angles that really use the space. Um, it's, it's a lot more presentational and a lot more, I mean, it's cause it's being done by people who are trying to like maximize all of the different things they can do in frame because they have complete control of frame. And that's where the kind of, you know, discipline comes from. But if you look at like the low angles and the high contrast and all of the things that he's doing about like separating frames and putting, pl placing stuff in frames, especially when people are walking from one place to another, you can tell that Romero is trying to not make a movie. He's trying to make a comic book. And I, I think that I picked it up. Uh, and I think that you can tell as well, uh, and it's not just the ones that freeze frame and turn into the comic book, you know, like over uh, the overlay. It's like he does it in his scenes as well. I think that's pretty cool. I think more people should do that. I think it's what Sam Raimi was doing during Spider-Man. And then we started to do it for superhero movies and then we dropped it. Um, but it's still kind of a cool thing that he does. And I think it's there. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Korean cinema, actually. Uh and I think it's interesting that you brought up anime earlier because uh, I also think just the impressionistic background thing. A book I always pitch is Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which has a great bit on impressionistic backgrounds and their history and various mm. cultures and like what they do psychologically to the human brain. But yeah, non-diegetic backgrounds are very interesting to me. Uh, and I also think, yeah, we can't underscore enough that how ballsy it was, and in this case, I think effective. Like, it seems corny now, but I, I'm i like, hats off to you for the boldness. Like, when the, like, he'll block out huge portions of frame, and it gives you something you never see, which is non-rectangular frames, arbitrarily shaped frames. Yeah. Like, when the dad in the opening segment gets killed, his head is crushed, and then he, we get a big black frame with just a little lump, be like amoeba shape in the left corner that is dripping blood itself like it has drawn right. blood on the black yeah. frame and his bloody head falls into that little space that's just not something you ever see i just think it's interesting to see like frames i mean we people talk so much about ang lee's hulk uh being like man at least he really tried to make it a comic book i'm like George A. Romero really tried to make this a fucking comic book. Yeah, really it did. really is a comic book. And if that's your goal and what you set out to do, you nailed it 
for mm. that, I think. And there's, um, you know, people I imagine could maybe do it more polished or more to my liking, but I mean, you well, made, yeah. <laughs> you made the three to nine major decisions that make it feel like a comic book all correctly. Like yes. those signature moments where people snap and it's red and blue. It's like, uh, it reminds me of the opposite of Grindhouse where I love both of the Grindhouse movies, Planet, Terror, and Death Proof. But when you watch them, you go, this isn't really an homage to Grindhouse. It uses some Grindhouse elements, but it's just like a little interesting movie um, <laughs> that's a horror comedy in both cases. But uh, this really feels like it is actually an, a knowledgeable homage to pulp horror in the and it, yeah, and that and it knows what it's doing and that it's made by all these people who grew up ingesting and creating that content. And yeah. this is just more of it. Yeah, you mentioned the polish, and I just want to say, uh, yeah, like I, I, I said the thing about the superheroes. You mentioned Hulk, very good. Uh, the if we want to talk polish, the actual winner is uh, Into the Spider Verse, right? Like that's that's how you made a comic book movie. You literally make a comic book movie. You draw. Oh, with out. truly non diegetic backgrounds and like shit. If, yeah. But if you really think about how to do it in live action, it's obviously much harder because you're trying to translate one medium into another. So, um, but it's just amazing to see how far we've come with the polish of this exact trope that we're talking about. Um, it's kind of cool. And this is like rudimentary and really primitive, but you can see all the thinking happening behind the frame. And that's kind of cool. Um, that's all I got for it. How about you? I wanted to ask you something because you said you watched the shit out of this mm -hmm. and we were working on a comic anthology. I hope it still comes to fruition someday. But I noticed that the lonesome death of Jody, Jody Verrill is not unlike the vibe of your Civil War manor that gets taken over by those memory webs. Oh, right. And that the crate is not that dissimilar no from I'm Helping, the genie one. And I was yeah. wondering if there's anything there. But well, that's, you that's, probably don't know the answer. I mean – why obviously there's got to be a psychology behind you but know, you the things you, you read and watch it, right i wasn't thinking about it but they're like standard tropes that i just that yeah. people want to play with thank you for mentioning some random short stories that i've written that's not what this podcast is about but i love you buddy it could be. Uh, but it it is true that i think that it this and it will probably be in the in my rankings uh you know like i, I won't I, I won't spoil but like I, if you grow up with a movie, there's a nostalgia for you, for mm -hmm. it. And this mm -hmm. is one of the king nostalgias that I had, you know, like this stand by me, you know, the yeah. shining, like that's the stuff that I was like, as a kid, I would watch a lot, yeah. um, just because we had it around the house. And I think that's true for a lot of people for King, especially. Um, yeah. Oh, wait. And to... I do have one more thing. You'd mentioned it in passing, but I actually think the last one is based on Scrooge. I really think it is a Christmas Carol because yeah. I think I think George is the ghost of Christmas past, the widow's the ghost of Christmas present, and the handyman's the ghost of Christmas future. And right he on. makes the wrong choice and then cockroaches get him. Because he hates the little people. That's Scrooge's problem. Yeah, he hates the little yeah. people. That's right. Yeah. And he's he's yeah, the reclusive right. millionaire. No, that's a good eye. I was that's only all? referring to his disposition and you took it all the way home, baby. Let's get to where we do this stupid thing where we rank them and now we're getting to 21 and it's mm -hmm. like bloated as hell. But here we are. Uh, we're going to talk about all all the different rankings of the movies in our, in our personal uh, version of the King Pantheon. We call it The Stand. Stantheon. The Stantheon. I guess. So it's 21, as I said. 
so how do you want to list these? How do you want to go from the top or from the bottom, my man? Starting at the bottom. Now we're here. Okay. Sure. All right. Let's just Let's blam, just blam, fast. blam. Yep. Yep. Right. 21 for me, maximum overdrive. 21 for me, 1979's Salem's Lot. For a tip TV. of the hat. <laughs> tip of the hat. I recognize game, recognize game. Mm-hmm. Tw- uh, 20, The Mangler. 20, Maximum Overdrive. Yes, 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 yes. This Man, song. that movie, I fucking forgot about that movie. That Jesus. movie sucks. All these movies suck. 19, uh-huh. Dreamcatcher. I agree. All these movies suck. 19, Green Mile. Yeah, you really hated Green Mile. I hate Eight, Green Mile. 18, Salem's Lot. <laughs> 18, Dreamcatcher. Yep, so we're all, we're all mm-hmm. except for Green Mile, which I placed higher. Uh, 17, Thinner. 17, Children of the Corn. Uh, yeah, it's fair. I put it higher. Uh, 16, The Dark Tower. I put that much higher. 16, Desperation. Yeah, all right. 15, The Dead Zone. My 15's The Mangler. That makes sense. It's fine. Uh, 14, I put 1990's It. So did I. I know. We both really didn't like that movie. Not that fun, but well made. I mean, great story, as we talked about on the podcast. Great story, just really poorly made film. Uh, Children of the Corn is my 13. Lucky 13, Dead Zone. All right. Number 12, I gave to Christine, which is maybe heresy. I gave it to Thinner. Yeah, that's fair. Eleven. That's where this is where I put Desperation. I actually kind of like oh, that movie. Yeah, Eleven Running Man for me. And that takes me to number ten, which I bolstered it up, but I'm really putting it in the middle of the road. I put Creep Show at ten. Oh, which makes it your dividing point. Okay, mm-hmm. that's my dividing point. Actually. All right, so the almost no tension left in this segment, but still a little. My number ten is Christine, the Haunted Car movie. All right, so you put it about yeah. Mm-hmm. N- number nine for me is the Green Mile. <laughs> number nine for me is Apt Pupil. Creep right. show's still creeping up on you. Go man, mm-hmm. go. Number eight is Apt Pupil for me. Number eight is Dark Tower for me. That one's too high. I should move it down. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, number seven for me is fourteen oh eight. Number seven is Creep Show. Creep Show. Number seven. Uh, Not too shabby of a showing for today's show. entry. Yeah. Wow, you, you yeah, you put it on seven. I put it at ten. You put it at seven. That's fair. Number six. Let's finish this out. <laughs> Running man for me. Now it's just gravy, baby. Number six, fourteen oh eight. All right, and then the mist is five. The mist is five. The mist you, is five. Uh, f- number four, I put Doctor Sleep. I think number four, misery. I put Misery. Yeah, I'm calling it. <laughs> number three, I put Misery. Number three, you I put, put Stand by Me. Oh yeah, that's right. You put no, you put Doctor Sleep on number two, and I put Stand by Me. I put number two as Doctor Sleep. Number one's Which The Shining. Number, number one's, one's The Shining. The shining. Yeah. That's- so interesting that in mine, The Shining franchise is where it's at for me. I guess The Shining franchise is where it's at. That mm-hmm. you're not wrong about that. Uh, and I should, I might, I don't know if it wasn't that stand by me and misery were such like important movies to me growing up, like watching them and going, this really made me feel something that resonates. Dr. Sleep was late edition. It's a very good movie and I may, maybe it should be higher than misery or stand by me, but I don't know. Uh, and that's just the way it, that's the way the stand crumbles. Yep. That's, that's the episode. Mm -hmm. We, we did creep Creep show. show. Pretty good. Woo! Well done, sir. Um, 
Yeah. What else, what else do we do? We just sit here. Do we just sit here and stare just at the wall enjoy until the next beer podcast? Hit Stephen King's children. Yeah. <laughs> who are our age? <laughs> Getting a bar fight with Joe Hill. Fucking drink a beer and stare at the fucking wall. Good just, night, everybody. <laughs> no, bye. Um, if you love us, you can find more podcasts on many different subjects behind mm-hmm. the paywall over at patreon.com slash small beans. You'll get Escape from the Multicurse, uh, Star Trek The Next Futurama, Spielboys. I think that's all the paywall ones. Yeah. Oh, there's some bonus good. episodes. That's good enough. And bonus episodes of other stuff, like I'll show you mine if you show me yours, mm-hmm. um, as well as our movie diaries about the film we're trying to make, Papa Bear. If you're interested in information about that, um, I mean, reach out. You can always reach out at all the small beans at gmail.com. Dude. Yes, it's a Blink 182 joke. Um, <laughs> otherwise, you can search around our Patreon page for stuff on Papa Bear or check out the video uh, production, the movie production diaries for more on that. Uh, I think that is a sode. Yeah. That is indeed. Well done, yeah, sir. Yeah. Well Till done. we king again. Clink. This has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.